Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello everybody, this is Tandy and you are listening to the Beer Ladies podcast once again. Thank you for joining us. Um, we have got the full crew today. So season three, if you hadn't quite figured it out yet, is just the four of us, which is kind of exciting. So we've got Katie, Lisa, Christina and myself. And um, it's not because we didn't like our season two hosts, folks. It's because <laughs> everybody gets busy and not everybody can commit to a full season of Beer Ladies hosting and recording. So fair play to everybody and thanks again to the season two hosts and um, so it's the four of us today and we've got a topic that is close to my heart it is all about home brewing um, as you know I am a I'd like to say an avid home brewer but I haven't brewed the whole of summer so <laughs> that's you know I'm going to be a, one of these like lapsed home brewers at some <laughs> stage but we're going to talk home brewing today we're going to go through a couple of um, things gone right things gone wrong how to get started in home brewing and what we might even look for with beer judging so what to what to do when you're entering a uh, homebrew competition um, to give yourself the best advantage. But before we get into all of that, let me remind you of all of our usual admin-y things. Um, we have a link tree now on our socials. That is Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We are at Beer Ladies Pod everywhere. Um, Facebook, I think, is Beer Ladies Podcast, but we are on Beer Ladies Pod on Instagram and Twitter. And from there, you can find um, different ways to either share our episodes um, or support us as a collective, as a group of women talking about beer. So you could buy some merch um, at our merch store or you can buy us a beer or a coffee, whatever. Um, and all of those links are in our bios, in our link tree, and they're also in the show notes down below. So go on, head to those um, and anything is always appreciated. So that's it, guys. Socials, um, the best way to really support us besides things like buying merch or buying us a, a beer is to share this podcast with your friends, share your favorite episode, um, or just share the whole thing, share a whole Spotify link if you wanted. But we're on all the podcatchers as well as on YouTube. Okay, let's go around the houses. Let's see what we're drinking. We're going to skip Christina today because she's not drinking today, which is also fair play. So Katie, let's go to you. So I am drinking a Leaf Kicker 2022 from Kinnegar. <laughs> Woohoo. There we go. I had those yesterday. Ah, oh, dear. It's a Mertzen. It's love. It's not. It's a special. 
it's not one of their Brewers in Play series, series though. So I'm wondering, is it going to be, I don't know, an annual thing? I don't know. Tell us. Know. This is what it looks like. Really nice, kind of goldeny color, and it tastes delicious as always mm. from Kinnegar. But yeah, I went to uh, I was in McHugh's in Malahide Road, and all the Oktoberfest stuff was in, and I was Ooh. just like, I have to buy this. I was like a kid in a sweet shop, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so there we go. That's what I'm drinking. Stunning, Lisa. What have you got today? Oh, well, first of all, I'm very excited to be back for this season. Um, and it's been crazy the you know, past couple of weeks. Uh, and so partially because it's been a crazy past couple of weeks, uh, I'm on low key today. So I'm on the Wicklow Wolf Moonlight. That's their non-alcoholic uh, hoppy, uh, hoppy ale. I was going to say, is it hoppy pale ale? Just hoppy ale. But it's uh, it's quite a quite a golden color. So, um, but definitely it's, it's got good flavor to it. I know... Um, Quite often, some of the uh, some of the non-alcoholic beers that are maybe not as successful have a bit of a wort flavor to them, which we'll probably talk about since home brewing. But this does not have that character at all. It's very pleasant, so good uh, good school night option. So Wicklow Wolf with their non-alcoholic one. Very nice. Um, so I've got a home brew tonight, although it is not my own, and that's my <laughs> confession. As I told you, I haven't brewed the whole of summer. And um, this is a barley wine. And it's 11.7%. And is, it is from a brewer that I regularly swap brews with. His name is Matt DeBrewer on um, Instagram. And he is a phenomenal brewer. Um, I even cracked out a special crystal glass for this Ooh. one, Ooh. which is quite fun. Fancy. Yes. And I, and I, said, I think it's actually... I think it's actually a waterford crystal. So that's kind of cool, even though it traveled from South Africa. So, <laughs> uh, but this this is diametrically opposite to what Kate, uh, what Lisa's drinking because it is Very much. Yeah, 11.7%. <laughs> that being said, the weather's good for it. And it's got, it's got all the warming flavors that you want from a barley wine. And it's just, it's beautiful. It's, it's rich and layered and doesn't have a lot of head, but that's not, um, that's not atypical for barley wines. It's gorgeous. Thoroughly enjoying this, this sipper at the moment. Lovely. Alrighty. So friends who are around the table as home brewed, show of hands and show of voices. Oh, it looks All like everyone. Us. Yay. Full house. That's amazing. My hand is very low. I have <laughs> a son of Katie. Um I've I've only I've home brewed three times. Um and the first time was when somebody was kind of teaching me how to do it. Second time I did it by myself and I uh, thought it was great. <laughs> and it turned out really well, actually. Um, so then the third time I'm like, come on, friends, I'll show you all how to brew. And obviously got hammered while we were brewing and <laughs> didn't clean something and it had to be poured down the drain. And I haven't done it uh, since because, I don't know, stuff just gets in the way, hmm. doesn't it? It's all the stuff is still upstairs in the attic. But there we go. Fair enough. I, I feel like you're not a real home brewer unless you've had to pour something down the drain at some point in your adventure, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Lisa, how often do you brew these days and what do you like to brew? It's, it's again, I, I feel like same. We haven't done much this summer, although I feel like maybe we're all allowed because it was so hot and, and putting on my, my beer judge hat, you know, think of how often that the temperature makes things go wrong. So I feel like we all get a bit of a pass for, for not brewing much this summer, but we did have a couple of things um, that we were doing in the spring and we've got um, 
kind of a long-term project in the mead we've got uh, bubbling away under our, our staircase. So that is, is one where that's going to be a, a very long, uh, sort of long tail project there. Um, and we keep sort of putting different things in it. Like we've done Szechuan peppercorns, we've done different fruits, uh, all kinds of different things. So that one's almost an easy, uh, it's almost an easy sort of tick box because it's already there. We can just put different things in it and it makes it a very different, uh, different kind of a thing. But I, I do think it's getting to be that time of year where, um, you know, I'm looking around, I'm not seeing enough bitters or milds out there. So it might be time to, to correct that at home. So watch this mm -hmm. space. Mm -hmm. And Christina friend, I think for anybody that um, follows Christina on Twitter or anywhere else, we all know that Christina tends to brew all these really ancient medieval ales. Tell us more about that. Right. So the reason I do this is because it's a lovely loophole that I don't have to do <laughs> all that sanitizing that you have to do when you normally brew. So basically, <laughs> the moral of the story is I'm lazy. <laughs> so I make these things and then I also get to do if it gets infected. Oh, well, that's just part of the historical process. <laughs> so really, it's just a loophole. <laughs> We've all got them. It's all good. Love it. Now, I, I started brewing um, initially, and I think what you'll find is a lot of people start this way. I started brewing with kits. So mm -hmm. a kit is just a, it's like a tin, and it's got this really rich sort of syrup in it. And what it is, it's the, it's the, what's the word I'm looking for? The concentrated wort. So imagine when you put a whole bunch of grains into water, that's the first step called mashing. All of your grains get in there and it's almost like making a porridge. Now, what they do with that is once it's reached its final, well, it's, it's, it's gravity, which means it's reduced, they've taken out all the sugars. They take this and they boil it right down so that what you're left with is a syrup. And all you have to do to brew with a kit is that you take the syrup, you add it to a bunch of water, and then you add effectively the yeast. And um, so it's actually, it's already um, got hops in a lot of cases um, and there are different ways you can do it. But all you're doing is adding syrup to water, adding yeast, you let it ferment and then you come back a couple of weeks later and bottle it and Bob's your uncle, you have beer. So I did that twice. Um, the first one was an IPA and I was hell of a worried about um, how it was going to turn out. And actually at the time, I didn't like IPAs that much. And I think that this homebrew was one of the, steps that made me like IPAs more, um, which is weird and not at all arrogant because I'm sure it was absolute rubbish. I was probably just, <laughs> you know, what is that attachment that you get to things that you make yourself? Yeah, mm. there's a name for that one. Um, so I think that that's what happened there. Um, so I, I did two kits and then immediately I was like, screw this. You can't control it enough. You can't mm. be creative enough. So I convinced my husband to get us a grandfather, which is the very opposite end, end of the spectrum of uh, home brewing and it's where you have a fully fledged piece of kit and you get your own grains in and your own hops and you can do all of the recipes and measurements yourself um, and that's how I've been brewing ever since which is good fun and um, not to say that I'm always a very successful home brewer so you know like Katie I've definitely poured one or two down the drain funny enough never really for sanitation which we'll touch on because sanitation is a really big step um, but often just because I'm I'm way too lazy is maybe the right word or maybe arrogant or maybe ADHD. Who knows? <laughs> I can't follow a recipe to save my life. So I just make up my own and then I change them along the way because, you know, as one does, it's kind of like cooking. I had a pinch of that, add a bit of that. Anyway, we'll see that that's also probably not the best way to approach homebrew. So a few of them have just been not, not nice as opposed to, 
infected. But for those listening at home, if you've never home brewed, it will probably help to go through a couple of the major steps of what a brew looks like, whether it's at home or whether it's in a brew house. Lisa, do you want to take us through some of the you know, very high level steps of this? Well, I think you did a good job with sort of explaining how, you know, everything gets into essentially that, you know, that extract, that that version of things. Uh, and I will say, uh, just as a, as a sideline, I've gone through the, the same thing of, you know, starting that way and then being like, wait, but I have no control over the thing. And then we went out and got our little grain mill, a little hand cranked thing and all of that, because you start to say, which parts am I really interested in? And for me, it's, the, you know, it's the malt. And so that goes in. But but again, you can really go down a rabbit hole with with uh, different yeasts and, um you know, all, all your, all your different hops, all, all of that kind of thing. But yeah, broadly, like, like you say, you're, you're effectively, you know, making porridge. So you're, you're, you're making wort. So you're getting all of those, those sugars out of the, uh, you know, out of your grain by boiling it, but not, you know, not so much. And then it's, it's really just figuring out like, when's the right time to cool that down? You know, when does it need to go and, and ferment? How long for? What kind of yeast are you putting in? You know, and, and when? Because, you know, is it something you're doing once? Is it something you're doing multiple times? And again, you can get really, really creative, I guess, with how you're you're doing that. And I, I kind of have the same thing. And I think Christina's point, too, where I'll start to be like, but historically, we might not have even bothered with X or Y, or maybe we did Y four times, like if you're looking at like a step mash or, you know, that kind of thing. And I know I'm getting like, slightly off, off the topic there, but I do think like, you know, basically, you know, you're making your water hot, you know, you're, you've got your grain in there, you're fermenting it, you're adding, you know, hops if that's what you want to do or other things if that's what you want to do. And then boom, you're, you're bottling it or you're kegging it or whatever. And, and I think the one thing too, like, at least in my experience, when it, when it comes to whether or not you pour it down the drain, even sometimes if it's good, you might just have so much of it that you can't get people to drink it and uh even if it's good so it's like what this is not what a do problem do? i've ever faced <laughs> no 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 <laughs> just be friends is... with the beer ladies and you will not that, have that, that may be it yeah it's, it's just a matter of transporting it from place to place probably more than more than anything else but uh Gen- yeah I, i've had some drain pours when 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 uh when when i brew you you can't actually stop me and my husband from drinking the brews, <laughs> and they disappear way quicker than than what the effort it took to get them. They will tell you. It's See, ridiculous. I think I get bored with my own stuff, and then I'm like, I you know, same thing. Like I'm like, oh, but I want to try something else. So you know, good intentions, and then I get distracted. So. Now, you see, I can't tend to keep bottles for any length of time. And um, when you're a home brewer, like it, it almost helps to try and get a little bit of a rhythm going in mm, terms that's of when yeah. you brew and deciding on what to brew based on either the time of year or the recipe that you're looking at, whether it's your own or whether it's taken from a book or somewhere else. Because something, let's say, like this barley wine that I've been drinking needs a lot of aging time. Yeah. And yeah. You know, you can't you can't be making a barley wine expecting to drink it two, three, four weeks later. Um, right. And then and then drinking that you're not going to drink it the way that you drink a pale ale or, you know, a dark mild, for instance, which is a really lovely, a lovely, quick, quickish turnaround brew. And it's yeah. easy enough to drink. It's low alcohol and it's perfect. But I can't seem to keep beers for long enough to actually build a schedule um, and also to age things like it's hell of a hard for me to keep beer for more than six weeks, which is a little bit of a downside, a little bit of a detriment to my own, uh, <laughs> to my own tasting. 
Well, although, you know, I, yeah. I, now that I'm thinking about it more, you know, you're saying sort of what are the steps I've realized I didn't start with sanitation, which, you know, should have been, you know, step one, like, you know, if I'm judging a competition, it's, it's, you know, that's always in my mind is did they do their sanitation correctly? And, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But, uh, but I think it's also because, you know, nine times out of 10, if something's gone wrong, it's either temperature or sanitation. So yes. it is really important to stay on top of that. But even when you stay on top of it, things can go wrong. Yeah. You know, there's just, you know, random chance too. So it's, uh, yeah. it's, it's not simple. Yeah, they can. it's not. And the equipment to start off with, like, I think if people are first time homebrewers, they're not going to start off with a grain father. Like we right. started off with a big, massive saucepan that we still use to boil yeah. our Christmas ham, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I cook all of mine are stovetop brews because, yeah. Yeah. well, for historical reasons, a lot of people would have just been cooking in their kitchen. Definitely. So, you know, I don't have, you know, the million euro funds to make a medieval <laughs> brew house or, or whatever, but, you know, I try to use closer to, to, to what could have been possible. Mm. And it's a really good point because I think that, there's a lot of people that are very um, intimidated by starting any homebrew project. So I think a lot of people would like to brew because they'd like to at least know what it's like to make beer with their own hands and their own ingredients, but it can be quite intimidating. So let's talk about just the very basics of how might you set yourself up for you know a very basic system because you don't need fancy equipment like a grandfather you know the the basics of what you need in my opinion but everybody chime in with with yours um you need let's call it a big pot i'm talking about mm -hmm. a 20 liter like a stock pot um now that can be quite tricky actually so for people who are on you know those kind of stove tops that have the plates instead of gas that's really hard um, if you've got a really big pot, because it doesn't exactly fit like properly. So a lot of people do invest if they've got a big pot, they invest in a small like gas cooker that the pot can go on to. But if you've got a gas um, stovetop, you can put any size pot on one of your plates. It'll be fine. Um, the next sort of thing that you will need is for your first step, which is mashing, and that's putting the grains into your pot with some water, you will need, just to make your life easier, some kind of sock or stocking. You can get, look, you can get everything that I'm talking about now at a homebrew store, but you'll need this because the, the step after mashing is called sparging. And sparging is when you take the grains out of the pot, and it's a lot easier to do if you've got something to hold them. Yeah. Just, and some of the brew and bag kits are really good for this. Like it, it comes yeah. with it and it's a little bit of a step up from just, you know, the extract, but you've got that, you've got that your yeah. sort of muslin bag there already. And that's a really nice, I think, entree without having to invest too Definitely. much. Definitely. Yeah. And, and like when I do my medieval brews, we don't sparge. So mm. it depends on what you want to do as well. There are also loads of home brewers who don't sparge anyway, whether they're on a grandfather or, or any other fancy kit. There's a lot of different beers that don't call for sparging. So instead, what it means is that you're adding the grains and the total volume of water to what your recipe calls for, as opposed to sort of half now, half during the sparge, which then boils off to become your, you know, your final volume. So it means that in a 20 litre pot, you'll probably only get five litres of beer out of it, yeah. or 10 maybe, but you'll be adding all, you know, almost up to the 20 litre mark of your initial water, but you never have to do both steps. So yes, that is definitely a way to do things. 
Um, so you need a sock. You'll need crocodile clips or something to keep them on. And that's a bit of a pro tip because those socks don't like to stay on. Um, so <laughs> do that. Um, and then you need you need a nice paddle to stir your stir your mash. And you're going to need some ingredients. So if you're going straight to all grain as opposed to the kits, you need things like um, hops, whichever hops you're choosing. Um, you need some kind of brewing software, which might tell you whether it's your own recipe or whether it's um, somebody else's. But it, it you might want to just put your ingredients and your quantities and everything into something like um well, the easiest one, I use actually the Grainfather software, which I find very good, but a lot of people use different kinds, and there are very easy, like to understand ones for beginners, they may not be the most accurate, but they're good to use, and then there's very weird, complicated ones that people have to get used to, the learning curve is a bit higher, something like Brewsmith is slightly higher learning curve, but very accurate, and very customizable, that being said, um, you'll need your basic ingredients, Malt, so that's your grains. If you are brewing at home and you don't have a malt miller or a crusher as Lisa's got, you want to buy that pre-crushed. Side note though, when you buy it pre-crushed, it's got a limited shelf life. So make sure that you buy only what you need as opposed to buying the things that you think you're going to brew for the next six months. So buy per brew almost and buy no more than two weeks in advance because otherwise it'll go stale. That's and Tandy's sure tips here. We're going to yes. call them Tandy's yes. tips. That's a good one. Tips. And actually, Lisa and Christina will be able to tell you, but at homebrew competitions, one of the biggest faults, if not sanitation and temperature, is oxidization and staleness. Mm. And it's mostly stale malt. You do get stale hops too. So hop storage is also very important. Freeze them. Just freeze them. Yeah, it's so much easier to look after them that way. I mean, as much as yeah. it's lovely to have, you know, your, your whole pellet hops, like, or your whole, you know, your whole flower hops, that's really for your commercial brewers, unless you have so much just in your garden, great, mm. then then go for it. But if you don't have that, it's it's not going to stay fresh. Yeah. No, no. And, and I've made that mistake before by keeping my hops in the fridge instead of the freezer. And it's... It's a very common mistake. And look, you've got to be quite, I think, experienced or the style has to lend itself to being able to pick up stale hops, but there is nothing like it um, and you will taste it. Anything papery and oxidized is just gross in a competition. Cardboard. So, yeah, cardboardy. Yep, the yep. white cardboard. No one yep. wants yep. that. And it's, mm -hmm. it is common. It yeah. is common. Very, very common. So besides your ingredients, um, obviously your yeast, which is also a really important ingredient. And a lot of people, as Lisa said, you know, you can go down whichever rabbit hole you want on whichever process or ingredient you want when it comes to homebrewing. A lot of people go down the yeast rabbit hole. Yeast storage is very important. Um, my best uh, estimate was to refrigerate yeast, not to freeze it. But I think that there is still some debate on that. It also depends on whether you're buying liquid yeast or dried yeast. Um, I think with liquid and dried, I'm sure that the best one is to just refrigerate, but happy to be proven wrong. Yeah, and, and it's about to making sure you're matching the yeast for, for what it is you're trying to do, because it's great to be creative, but sometimes you will get things that just do not go together. And and this is, again, where you can talk to whoever is at your homebrew store or someone who's, who mm -hmm. you maybe is you know part of your homebrew club, or even if you don't have that, just look online and you can get a sense of, will this work, will this not? And it's great to try and experiment, but you know, for example, some, you know, we'll call them Belgian yeasts for, even though that's too broad a category and I can get pedantic about that, but some of them just will not play nicely with, with the, uh, you know, certain hops. And uh, 
it'll just, it'll end up tasting like, you know, it'll be very catty. Don't do it. So, but again, mm. that goes back to sort of the, the stale hops idea as well. But once those come, like, to to come together, that's, nobody wants that. I'll put it that way. No. So, yes, exactly. So pick, pick your ingredients, um, whether it's, you know, again, start from a recipe. Don't be like me, kids. Start from a recipe <laughs> of things that actually work, um, because it's a really good way to learn. <laughs> Definitely. Um, start from that there's loads of good books that have got recipes you know a thousand and one beers that you must brew before you die you know these kinds of these kinds of books are actually really good because they don't just um teach you what's in these very um well-known kind of styles or beers that we that we know and love it teaches you about the processes involved because as with anything as with cooking baking brewing it's not just about your ingredients it's also about the method and a lot of different beers have got a lot of different methods involved. Um, whether it's something that, that Lisa mentioned earlier, something like step mashing, which is bringing your mash temperature up by specific degrees of, of heat. And it's, you know, leaving them at certain steps. And that's really good for um, things like Pilsners. It's also good for things like a vice beer, mm -hmm. where you actually need to do a bit of a protein rest before bringing it up to its, um, its heat. But regardless... You'll find all of that. There's plenty of resources online. But if we're talking now about equipment, so besides your ingredients, which you can always get from a homebrew store, um, you need that like stovetop um, stockpot type thing with a paddle and a sock and clips. That's your cooking um, bit. You'll need another pot. If you're not going to do no sparge, um, so if you're going to need to pour water over your grains to rinse them and, and get all the residual sugars out, which is normally step two of a brew, you'll need another pot to have hot water in with a jug um, so that you can pour the sort of heated water onto your grains. So that's number two. And then number three, you'll need to cool it down. Um, so if you're starting from absolute basics, what's helpful is a bathtub with lots of ice. Um, if you don't have a bathtub, <laughs> you could use literally a wheelie bin or just like a really, really big bucket, um, but lots of ice to cool it down quickly. One of the steps within a home brew is to cool down your, your brew quite quickly. It prevents the formation of all kinds of off flavors. It also brings it to the best temperature for the yeast quickly. And you want to do that so that nothing funky grows. Um, and then after that, you need a fermentation bucket. So that is a food grade plastic bucket or a demijohn, which is glass. You also need a way to clean these things. So you need all of the right cleaning equipment for whichever one you've got. Sometimes glass and plastic can be treated differently. Sometimes not. It's okay. You need to clean and you need to sterilize. Another big mistake I've seen in beginner homebrewers is thinking that that's the same process. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> so people think that the sterilizer actually cleans everything. It doesn't. You need to clean, rinse, then sterilize. A lot of sterilizers can be left on because they're food safe, which is handy. Thank goodness for that. Um, but check your ingredients. You'll always need, you'll generally need both. So, um, And you'll need with your either demijohn or your bucket, you'll need some kind of airlock, um, which basically prevents funkies from going in, but it allows the CO2 to escape. So think of it as a one-way valve. You normally fill it with uh, water or if you're like me, a bit of like vodka or gin, something, you know, strong alcohol to kill anything if it was on its way in and is fairly sanitary. Um, and then you're going to need, if you're very, uh, if you're beginning your journey, you're going to need bottles. <laughs> now, 
don't don't simply be tempted to keep all the bottles that you've been drinking um and it's not because they're not good enough they are but bottles have got annoyingly different diameters on their on their necks and because you're going to need caps for these bottles you just need to make sure if you're going to be reusing bottles make sure that they've got the same diameter of neck as the caps that you're buying because I've made that mistake before too, <laughs> trying to keep bottles and thinking that they're going to fit my caps. No, they don't. <laughs> um, you're going to need that. You'll need a way to carbonate your beer. So once it's fermented, normally that takes about two weeks. It depends on the style though. Um, you want to then san like clean and sanitize your bottles, get your beer in normally with a little bit of extra sugar or something just to reactivate any residual yeast and that carbonates in the bottle. And, um, and you need something to be able to cap it. So if you're using straight kind of crown caps like these ones, if you're watching YouTube, this is a crown cap. Um, you need a bit of a machine. It's not a machine. It's just a little clamp almost a little clamp. to yeah. cap them. Yeah. yeah. Um, and they don't run too expensive either. So they're not difficult to get. Uh, you need one of those. Um, or if you are trying to be smart and using things like those bottles that have already got the cap on them, be very careful because they get very dirty um, but you can you can use them but that is be very careful with those um so you need a capper you need bottles and you'll need a way to clean these bottles so a brush normally is the first thing plus again your chemicals that's the same for all of your stuff and then you leave those to sit for another let's say two to three weeks again depending on the style to carbonate in generally a warm-ish area so there are parts of your house that are good for home brewing and parts that aren't. Um, <laughs> you don't want things to be too hot. I've got a story for that later. Um, but you don't want things to be too cold because when you are, depending on the style again, different yeasts need different temperatures in order to actually work. And that goes for primary ferment or for primary fermentation as well as conditioning or bottle fermentation. Um, you don't want it to be in the coldest part of your house, if if that part of your house is eight degrees, because man, yeast will just go straight to sleep, just like everybody in a in an aircon hotel room, you go straight to sleep. Same thing with yeast. So that that's basically what you need if you really starting I'm, from the beginning. I'm gonna add that um you sh a thermometer. Yes. Uh, digital is easier. I don't know, and also um what's it called a hydrometer. Hydrometer specific mm -hmm. gravity as well and and if this is all very intimidating which it can sound incredibly intimidating um there's lots of homebrew stores online in ireland that you can just kind of get a basic kit so you don't have to unless you want to get all the equipment separately which knock yourself out if that's what you want to do but i have just a stovetop kit from getter brewed um, I order most of my stuff from Getter Brood. I really like them. Their delivery is so fast. Um, I've ordered two different stovetop kits there because I was using a glass bottle and I hate it. So, um, <laughs> but that's just personal preference. Other people like mm. them. I don't like it. Not for me. Um, so I just went with a plastic bucket this time and I'm much happier with that. But it comes with a lot of that equipment. So the first one I got, I got the capper. I got bottle caps. I got um, like the big glass thing the funnel to get from one direction to the other. Mm. Like it came with a, like a lot of different stuff mm. and it wasn't that expensive. Now they have like more advanced ones and you know, it'll go up and up and up, but you don't, if, if you are intimidated, 
when you're thinking about all this, there are absolutely places where you can just be like, okay, just send me the stuff and they'll send you everything um, with instructions on how to use it as well. Mm. So that's what I do. And I do recommend that. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm. They will normally have everything in there and that's that's all good homebrew shops. So Get A Brood is one of them that here in Ireland, um, I use Get A Brood mostly. There's also um, the homebrew shop, which mm-hmm. is very good. They also have um, these kinds of things, beginner's starter kit. And, you know, they've got everything. Um, and, and you know, everybody, all of these companies deliver and they do all the things. So it's always a nice thing. And I'm sure if you're in the States or if you're in Canada or India or Australia, wherever you are, there are homebrew shops that that will put together these packages for you. Um, but that's the rundown of kind of what you need. The hydrometer, by the way, and, and a thermometer are good calls because part of part of good home brewing and good brewing in general is measuring. So that's your data. So if you measure where your beer started out and then you measure it every few days while it's fermenting, you will know when it's fermented out. But you don't really know when it's fermented out unless you have that starting point. Yeah. Um, a lot of the brewing software will give you estimates, but that's not good enough if you're trying to bottle your beer. Um, and a lot of people make the mistake of not measuring things like their original gravity and their final gravity and and all the things you don't have to measure everything but measure those because what happens and this is probably the most common homebrew fail story in the world what happens is if you leave too much sugar after that primary fermentation and you bottle it by adding more sugar to get it fermenting and, and and carbonating in the bottle you get what is bottle bombs and, <laughs> and bottle bombs are the, the effective horror story of all beer homebrewing. Um, it's almost the only way that homebrewing beer is going to actually or could actually harm you or your house. <laughs> <laughs> and what it does is it just puts too much pressure in the bottle because there's too much activity from the yeast and then the bottle explodes. It, it doesn't matter that it's glass, <laughs> it explodes. And there's lots of people that have had that um, that happened yeah that, that's one of those anecdotes that my, my dad used to tell me the story of even when they were making soda at home in the 1930s so this is a very long time ago you know sort of small town america and it's, it's in a cellar all, all of these things but they're making their sarsaparilla soda and you know they let children do you know whatever back back then but they'd done all the things they'd they'd put way too much sugar in clearly and he would tell this story again and again and they started hearing just sounds from below when they're you know kind of in their living room and they, they looked down in the cellar and just saw, you know, bottle after bottle and cap after cap just flying everywhere. So, and, yeah. and that's, you know, again, making something not alcoholic, you, you kind of add another you know, degree of difficulty. So yeah, you don't want to be there when you've got those, you know, literal glass flying everywhere. It's uh, definitely yeah. not, uh, it's suboptimal, don't do it. So one, one thing I wanted to add too is, is I, I, again, it's so important to just sort of check at your local homebrew store because it doesn't have to be complicated. They can walk you through what you need for your setup and just to get started. But one of the things that struck me when we were first getting started, you know, this is close to 20 years ago now, like how much of this stuff is, is really not like it's basic stuff. It's plastic buckets effectively. And some, you know, like this is some glass jars and funnels and, you know, it's, it's not stuff that you couldn't necessarily source other places, but it's nice that the homebrew folks have figured that all out for you. And so you don't have to go hunting around. Now that said, as you get more, as you get better at it and you get more sophisticated, then you can also start saying, oh, I want this specific yeast from this person who, you know, who supplies X or Y, but you don't have to do that starting out. You know, let them do that legwork for you until you really know kind of 
what you're doing and if you need to hunt down those those other things because I think it can be a surprise initially to spend a bunch of money and get all your kit you know arrives in the in your you know kind of in your cardboard box and you're like it's a plastic bucket okay but yeah that's just it's very normal stuff so don't don't freak out although it is really funny because it's one of um the running jokes in the homebrew community it's like you think you start homebrewing to save money in, in inverted <laughs> commas or, or, or air right. quotes you really don't save money you do you, like actually in the long run you do if if all you're going to drink is your homebrew or if you're going right. to homebrew enough that you've got your regular drinking days kind of sorted it really can save you a lot of money um, but don't get into it if you think it's just going to be that because you will have a very unpleasant surprise ahead of you. It's, <laughs> it's, it's one of these hobbies that can get very expensive very quickly. And the initial outlay, look, it may be 100 or 150 euros initially per brew. Again, it depends on what you're going to be brewing. And look, I can only talk in, in euros at the moment and in Ireland at the moment, but I spend on average 20 to 25 euros on a brew. And that's ingredients um, and shipping mm. and all of the things. But I've been staying away from hoppy beers and hoppy brews because I didn't have, I, I wasn't super confident about whether I could keep the hop flavors and aromas while bottle conditioning as opposed to kegging. Now, mm, kegging yeah. is, is obviously one way to level up, level up your home brewing. If you're going to do, you know, if you're going to do one thing, first do temperature control. If you're going to start spending more money after a basic kit, then do kegging. And um, I would do temperature before kegging, but that's just me. Um, and how would you do temperature control, Tandy? Would you just get mm. like a, a like a lagging jacket, or would you go more mm. more <laughs> so off market? It depends on what your problem is that you need to solve. So the problem that I have is that I can't get my beers cool enough. If I want to do something like a lager, um, I can't get my beers cool enough. While my house is actually cold it still sits at 14 odd degrees in the middle of winter. And that's not quite cold enough for a lager. So to cool things down, you'd need something like a fridge or a freezer that's been converted to be able to be temperature variable. Um, and there are ways to kind of hack that. You can, it's a DIY job. It's a reason that brewing is very much shares a Venn diagram section <laughs> with people who like to do, do things themselves and build stuff and engineers, especially software engineers. But um, so it's a bit of a DIY job where you get a temperature controller and you get a monitor for inside and it plugs into different powers. So that's the one, that's the one thing. And that solves kind of two problems. The one is heating and the other one is cooling. Um, so if you needed your beers for the yeast that you've got or for the style that you're trying to brew to be warmer, you could get something quite um, quite simple, like a like a jacket, um, or put it into a bit of a polystyrene box because it just keeps heat a little bit better. Insulating for heat is a lot easier than cooling things down. Um, but there's, I think that there's something that people don't really talk about in home brewing, and it's not just fermentation temperature. Fermentation temperature is enormously important, especially depending on which style you brew. But it's also the conditioning and storage temperature mm -hmm. that you need to take account of. So for me, if you're going to really do temperature control properly, you actually need to have two different things. One is the place where you keep your kegs or your bottles, if you're going to be serving them, at the right kind of temperature that conditions them and that you can keep them for a long time. Now, what I've seen with my own brews, because I don't have good temperature control at the moment, is that they, they, just, they get too warm. For a long time. So 
it's absolutely not the reason that I drink my beers too quickly, but you know, they can't <laughs> stay in my yeah. yes, <laughs> they can't stay in my kitchen cupboard for six months and I without any um effect on them. You know, to condition and keep beers for a good long time, you need them to be cold, like two, four, six degrees. You know, you need them to be at that temperature. And that's also good for kegs. You know, whether it's at a 12 degrees or eight degrees, these are good cold temperatures. So that's a serving let's say cooling thing and then the other one is fermentation so unless you're brewing exactly one beer at a time for many weeks at a time you might need even more than one kind of solution for your different fermentations some need warmer stuff if you bring with, with a kvike yeast for instance you need to be at 36 38 degrees celsius that is hot yeah with, with any temperature whether it's hot medium you know mild or warm or cold what you really need is consistent temperature yeah. so it, it you, you know you could use a fridge for that with a temperature controller um or you could use all these very smart fermenters that have got glycol chillers attached and heating attached to them you could use very basic setup or very um expensive like fancy setup but what you're looking for is something that is consistent that you can control and that you can use for different kinds of brews now that's an expensive rabbit hole to go down, but I would go down that before I went back to kegging, even though kegging is so much easier and so much better. You don't have to clean 40 bottles every time you brew. Um, the problem is that I don't, I would already need something to store the keg, yeah. keep it at temperature before serving it. And so then I may as well invest in two things. So I'd still rather bottle after having temperature control for fermentation. Yeah, and that's a, I think it's an important point too about the the storage versus your your temperature when you're actually brewing because it's it's easy to be like oh I'm going to get a wort chiller this is going to be great yes that solves that problem but then mm -hmm. then you're still you still have to you know keep it after that it and and again like it can sound like oh there's a lot of great kit that will solve this problem but the more you dig into it it's like oh, okay but then it may create another problem down the line so think about what you really need it doesn't mean don't buy these things it's just try to think about what you're trying to do and. Is it going to be mm. worth getting the cool piece of kit that maybe you use once or twice and then say, oh, is this really going to be something I use in the mm. long run? And I think that's the other reason that you do see people within the homebrew community say, does anyone want this? I, I don't think I need this now. So people will trade kit around and let you borrow things. So I think that's also, you know, important pro tip. Definitely share. Definitely. And yeah. And I think sometimes it's just like finding out what's the temperature in my shed or what yeah. if, if I decide to not turn on the rad in this room, you know, so that the temperature doesn't isn't nice and cool. And then it comes on for two hours and my temperature shoots up because you don't want the little temperature spikes. You just want a constant. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. And yeah. if this all sounds incredibly complicated, <laughs> incredibly intense, may I introduce you to historical brewing? <laughs> Where the turnaround is quick and the sanitation is dodgy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> now, that being said, there are some projects where they're, they're literally um, building the brew houses that like would have been and they're using like sundials and hourglasses that are recreated from what they would have been at the time and we definitely need to get some of those people on the podcast so that will happen in the future but that is not what I do <laughs> um so I should say historical ish recipes um something that's just a bit of fun um I am in no way walking around here saying it's exactly what it would have been like in the time but um 
I was joking when I said about uh, the loophole, but I'm actually kind of not because I don't um, sanitize as such. So I clean and then I'll add boiling water, but I'm not going to use any chemicals that wouldn't have been available um, for reasons. Also lazy, Um, but it's, it's less, it's a lot less steps. So um, for me, uh, depending on what recipe and who I'm brewing after and, and, and I have the recipes that I've done on my website, um, you know, not always sparging, for example, um, there's definitely arguments you made about filtering and not filtering the, the, the malt out. There are definitely people that have made arguments about, you know, fermenting on grain, which is a whole nother thing, but it's a lot they can be a lot less labor intensive in the long run. So some of them are quite more complicated when you're doing the mash in. So you're adding water at this time and 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 this, it's a lot. So there's a lot of steps, but then that's it. Um, you're not necessarily adding hops. So for a lot of medieval ales, you aren't necessarily adding any herbs or you're doing it later in sort of like a cheesecloth bag and you're just letting it hang there. So there's a lot less intensity there. And for some of them, the turnaround is a week or less. So you're not fermenting them for ages. But then again, these aren't necessarily um, ales or beers that are going to be something that you're going to make a lot of. It's not necessarily something that you want to drink constantly. Some of them are really low ABV. So like that's things to keep in mind, but they're really fun to make. Just, I would love to see more people recreate kind of this stuff and and um, we can talk about it and compare notes and see what we think about um, these kind of things. I just think it, it would be, it'd be really fun to do. Um, so just like I've made a medieval English small ale, um, a Sumerian ale, working on Irish medieval ale, like these sorts of things. And they're just, it's just kind of fun way to, I don't know, meet people in the past. Like it just to kind of share that experience maybe. And like, I'm very clear they're historical ish because I don't have, you know, the same equipment. I'm not doing it over a fire, for example, you know, like there's definitely things that aren't precisely, you know, I'm using my stovetop, so I'm definitely cheating. Um, but it's it's just a bit of fun, and I do recommend that if you just want to try something that's really not a quite as intense um, mm. as some of the other beers that you can make. Um, it's just yeah, it's fun. <laughs> it sounds fun. I think that to me, even though the process doesn't sound as intimidating, it sounds more intimidating to me to try and find the. Um, the recipe or how it might be historically accurate like that to me sounds like the work of it Um, yeah yeah I should I should probably you know that's my job so I guess like that's the fun stuff for me but like I also you know it's an experiment so like it doesn't have to be perfect like for me Mm. in my brain it's like oh I like this person's recipe this is something that they've tried let me like look at what I have okay maybe that's similar let's just try it and see where we go. I'm not, when I recreate these historical beers and make these historical ish recipes, it's fun. Like this is fun for me. If I was going to write an academic paper, I wouldn't be doing this. I would have to have different equipment. It would be a whole nother ball game. This is just play. 
this is just mm. for fun. This is not in the realm of what some academic, like I was saying that, you know, they're recreating the brew house. This is not in the same realm of that. This is, Hey, what can I do in my kitchen to get pretty close to this? And that's all it is. And there's a lot of really amazing resources out there that have these, you know, ale recipes or braggot recipes from the past that you can access. Um, and then we can just look at uh, like the Priory, Christchurch Cathedral, when it was a Priory, we have account rolls. So that's what I've used to make the grain bill for my medieval Irish ale. And then I've looked at medical texts and the archeological, archaeobotanical evidence to see like what herbs were here. So yeah, okay, maybe that part's intense, a little bit, maybe. <laughs> Um, <laughs> because because this is a bit of a choose your own adventure, and and I think that it can be intimidating anyway. Whether you're home brewing to try and make beer that's really drinkable, or whether you're trying to make beer that you can enter into a competition, or whether you're trying to replicate something historical or get close to it, it's all going to be experimentation. You know, you're not gonna you're not gonna make excellent beer every single time. You can dial in your processes, and you can really, um, if you're quite a methodical person. Is that the right word? Yes. Yeah. If you're quite meticulous and methodical, this this is a, a hobby that you could really get into because homebrewing, whether it was medieval and it was, you know, very much a, you know, done in the kitchen and everybody kind of did it, it still requires steps and processes and things that you can kind of dial in and tune up and and really perfect. But it is an experiment. And you know what? It's only beer. It's okay. Like yeah. yeah it's it's for me it's fun like it's just it's yeah. just a fun thing to do I just thoroughly enjoy it if I started obsessing over a lot of the details I don't think I would have as much fun anymore so for me when I'm recreating these historical ales it's very much historical ish and I'm just a bit of fun that I'm just trying mm. trying out mm. trying out for funsies <laughs> yeah yeah, and like you said, there are resources out there, lots of stuff is published already, and in very accessible texts, they're not all hidden away in academic papers, a lot of things are just, you know, recipe books, they're, they are out there, and again, your homebrew store can direct you to some of these, or we can let you know, like some of our own favorites, but uh, they're, they're not so hard to find that you'd have to go go hunting for them, some of them are, absolutely, but there's a lot that is accessible that you can just get in there and start tinkering around with. Mm. Absolutely. Um, one yeah. thing that we haven't covered yet, and I know we did an episode last season on water, Water 101 with our good friend Chelsea. Hi. Um, Hi, Chelsea. Water, we haven't spoken about. And right. it's like, do you use tap water? Do you use bottled water when you're starting out? Because you're not going to invest in an ion exchange or anything like that from, from the get-go. Oh man, yeah, it, it's a really good question. Yeah, and what do you want to what do you want to make? And you know, yeah. do you have to burtonize your water, which is just one of my favorite words. Uh, and again, people will geek out about that. Yeah, burtonize. So yeah, it's effectively making your water as if it is like the water from Burton on Trent. Burton so on again, Trent. are you adding salt? Are you taking away salt? Like it's so many things you could do. And I, I will say, I, I don't think I've ever met a home brewer who has not at some point had their water analyzed just to see what what's in their tap water is it something you can you know do x or y with and, and it can make a big difference and especially here in ireland a lot of people have very hard water or depending mm. you know other very soft water too so that's mm. something you definitely need to to consider when you know thinking about what is something i can brew well with you know the resources at hand and uh and I think too, like like you were saying, Christina, that can sound like it's really scary and intimidating because you have to start doing chemistry. And I was not good at that at school, but 
for some reason, like maybe because it's more practical, I'm like, oh, I can figure this out though. So yeah, but it, yeah, it's I, a good question. I still find water the most terrifying part of brewing. It's the thing that intimidates me the most, but here's, here's some advice that I got and I think it stood me in good stead. If you like the taste of your tap water, your drinking water, you will likely like the taste of your beer. Now, you may not get the hops to stay in your beer because a common complaint here, especially in, let's call it South Dublin, where I am, is that hoppy beers just don't work. The hops just like disappear in the beer. Um, and it's because it's not hard enough. It's quite soft water. So if you, if you want to not do anything to your water, that's fine. But you will find which styles work and which ones don't. And you can choose to brew things that work with what you've got, or you can brew things you can brew what you want, but then you'll have to change some variable, okay? So figure out which kind of a brewer you are. I'm more of the brew with what I've got for now. So I don't tend to brew overly hopped lager, like overly hopped beers. Firstly, I don't really want to waste the money. Hops are super expensive, um, especially if I'm bottle conditioning and bottle conditioning is just not the best for um, hoppy beers. Um, so I tend to stick to things like a vice beer or I've brewed a dark mild before, which was really interesting. I've made some good stouts. Um, I've made, you know, things that are slightly more balanced or slightly more multi for my kind of water right now. And because I bottle condition, they work. That being said, again, it's only beer. If you wanted to start small, start with, I don't know, five liters of every kind of thing that you're trying to do and see which ones work with your, with your water. If there's something in your water that you don't like the taste of, with, I mean, without filtering it at all, then figure that thing out um, and go back and listen to our water episode because at the very end, there was a bit of um, advice that I got from a very, very well accomplished home brewer. And it's just about, you know, which salts and things to add for which kind of beer you're trying to look for. Could probably pull it up, but maybe we'll put it into the show notes below just as a guide. But yeah, it's um, just brew what you brew what you want. It's only beer. It's an experiment. It's not a competition. If you like the beer, then that's also fine. Just don't use brewer's yeast. Don't use that. <laughs> that's not for beers, for bread. Ish. <laughs> yeah, you'll get your actual yeast at the homebrew store. Yeah. Yes. Which will not be called brewer's yeast. So that can be confusing, yeah. but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But water is one of those rabbit holes that you can go you could absolutely go down that one. Um, when I first started brewing, I was more interested in malts and figuring out the play between malts. And then it was kind of hops. And I was like, oh, what do I do with all these different hops and, and figuring out processes in which to get the best hop flavors. But that was that worked well when I was kegging. Um, because when you keg, you don't have this sort of natural um, fermentation happening in the bottle to carbonate it. So when that happens, it eats at your hop oils and your hop flavors and so you get a much pared down version of whatever hops you've got if you bottle conditioning which is why i've stayed away from it here but if you're kegging and you force carbonating easy peasy do what you want so what gotchas should homebrewers be looking at then before they enter their beers into competitions so beer judges looking at you i'll, I'll start with I'll one in, i'll start with yeah. one thing that i get slightly fussy about um and, and just a side note i discovered because facebook decided to tell me that it's 15 years ago i took the bjcp exam initially so i've been doing that a long time um apparently congratulations yeah so there you go um That's but really i think good. 
we, we touched on it a little bit before, but I'll, I'll bring it back up is the bit about your, your record keeping and, you know, measuring and keeping stock of your, your original gravity and what you've put in it. I think if you're going to enter something into a competition, first of all, it just behooves you to be taking notes and knowing what worked, what didn't, so you can build on your, your own process. But when you are entering it into a competition, and if you don't really know what you kind of what you've ended up with, uh, whether it's because you've not taking your notes throughout or because you're just kind of guessing. And sometimes it can be wrong just no matter what, but that helps so much to make sure you're entering things into the right category or at least gets you more um, kind of in the ballpark. So if I'm looking at like, you know, sheets of saying this should be this and I'm like, oh no, this says it should be a 4%, you know, porter or whatever. And I taste it, I'm like, oh, something happened here. And this is clearly much stronger, you know, much, much more alcoholic, you know, th that kind of thing, I think. Maybe that, you know, instead of going back to those sort of obvious technical faults, which might have been around, you know, again, sanitation or, or heat, in that case, I'd be something like something's gone wrong here with some sugar or something didn't ferment right or fermented in a crazy way. But, you know, I, I think that record keeping, that kind of discipline there can help make sure you're not making some of those mistakes. And also, if, you know, again, because you're going to hopefully taste it before you're entering something into the competition, <laughs> you're yeah, hopefully you're going to be like, wait, wait, I, I should be getting this, but I'm tasting that. Like, hopefully that'll help you kind of be like, hmm. Now that said, I've then seen people go and revise, be like, yes, this is actually this. I'm like, great. If that's what it ended up as, sure. You know, why not? You know, all good, but just try I, to be in the right exactly. category. Yeah. That was I the one thing. Yeah, mm. definitely. Definitely. That's, like, that's one of the biggest issues I come across. Mm. Make sure you're into the, the right category. And that's not, it, it, it doesn't come from which grains and amounts and hops you yeah. use. It actually comes from tasting the beer because you can get penalized or kicked out. If you make the best session IPA you've ever made in your whole life, but if you've entered it into an IPA category, it's not gonna. It's not gonna score. Exactly. It just won't score. So no, yeah, we're yeah. not allowed to. We can't. No. Like, and it's frustrating. And like, I've definitely written in feedback before. This is a really good beer. Definitely. But it's mm. not this, you know, category. And if mm -hmm. you put it in this one, I would have given you really high marks. But I can't grade you as that. I have to grade you in the category in which you entered, you which means yeah. You might get docked a lot of points in a BJCP homebrew competition simply because we're not allowed to give you those points, and exactly. you know, and then we'll write in the in the in the notes about that. But that's one thing to really watch out for. You know, I cannot agree with Lisa more than than this one. Totally, yeah. and that also means, by extension, that you should be planning your brews if you know that there's a competition coming up. Plan it so that you've got plenty of time to actually taste your beer before entering it into the competition um because a lot of competitions you when you enter your beer is probably still fermenting um, yeah. see see if you can enter without entering the category or see if you can change it because it, it is a thing i think um because it's a hobby guys like i think people are brewing right until the minute that it needs totally. to get sent off and that's fair enough i've, be, I've been there i've done this but gosh brew first enter later do that yeah absolutely and, and sometimes you know things will happen that may not be you know that'll be out of your control like the temperature while you're sending your things over or what happens when they get stored somewhere while you're you know waiting for that competition to happen you know it that's not always great so there's all those variables that you can't control but control what you can it's it really mm -hmm. does it really does make a difference and, and I think even if it's a recipe you've made again and again really successfully just 
just taste it and see, is it still landing where it should? Because again, sometimes things just happen. I, I do have one thing that I, I like to call sort of accidental cool ship syndrome. And you, you don't, you don't want that. It's, it's, you know, where you suddenly a rogue yeast has gotten in somewhere. You don't know how, and again, it's something that may have worked again and again, but for whatever reason, you know, something blew in, the window was open, you know, you can have it all go horribly wrong. So just taste it, make sure it's still, it's still the right thing. Um, and again, sometimes the wrong thing can happen and it turns into a great beer, but you know, maybe you don't want to then enter it into a competition. You want to figure out, Ooh, what happened here? Is this, you know, do I want to replicate this? Did I mean to do this without knowing it? So, uh, you know, it doesn't have to be competitive. It can just be creative. So. And equally on that, I just want to say, it's actually totally fine to enter a beer in a competition you know isn't that good yeah. because you want the good yes. feedback. You want feedback. If you're a BJCP beer judge, you should be filling out that whole sheet from top to bottom. There shouldn't be blank lines. They should be giving you in incredible detail what went wrong if something went wrong, what to fix, how to fix it, where in the brewing process it was fixed. That's the feedback that you should be getting. Definitely. If you're not getting that, you should complain about it because that's what you should be getting. And so it is completely encouraged by me <laughs> um, to enter a beer that you're like, eh, something's not right here. Yeah, totally. You know, maybe I just want some feedback on this. And I obviously don't even need to enter a competition to do that, but like it really does help to get all that written feedback on all the different portions. And if you're not familiar with BJCP judging, um, we did a, a episode on that, so I recommend listening to that. But overview is you, you know, you look at the beer from aroma, appearance, um, uh, flavor, mouthfeel, mouth impressions. Yeah, yeah. blah, 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 yeah. blah. Anyway, the point is, is that there's lots of different categories that you should, that the judge will be considering. And then they'll also, you know, mention off flavors and all these other things. So you should be getting lots of detailed feedback. So if you want to progress in your brewing journey and you're a little intimidated by these competitions, it's okay. And it's encouraged that you should enter beers that you're not completely confident with. So that way you can get more confident. Totally. So it's, it's, re I really, really encourage you mm. to enter the competitions. If, if you're like, oh, I don't, I just don't know what, you know, it's, it's, it's meh. I want it to be good, but it's meh, you know, and, and just to see what kind of feedback that you get and see if that's something that you can apply. Um, and that's what I would recommend. I, yes, I, I want to agree with that. Although maybe it just combines both points, but if you're opening up your bottle and it's just kind of overflowing and, you know, it's, it's a real kind of spiller, whatever the case is, don't enter it because you know what's wrong. It's sanitation, fix that first. And then go to your homebrew club please join a homebrew club. Homebrew clubs are so, so good because in general, people meet whether it's once a month or once every two months, you taste each other's beers and look, there may not be BJCP judges all the time, but you'll bet that there will be BJCP judges there oh, yeah. who can give you very pinpointed and yet casual feedback on your beers. So if you've got a gusher, um, it's generally an infection that generally comes down to sanitization, cleaning, um, but if it's, as Christina says, if it's just not quite delivering on what you aimed for, a competition is a great way to get feedback because that'll, it'll come down to weird things like your water, um, mm -hmm. your fermentation temperature, maybe, although that's a fairly easy one to kind of identify, but water, um, freshness of ingredients, you know, these kinds of things will come up in your 
and in your feedback. It's very useful. Mm-hmm. You're here. Yeah. Well, friends, I did ask around, I asked around on Twitter and I asked around in one of the homebrew um, chats that I'm in. And I did ask for some stories, just in case we didn't share enough um, of what can go wrong and what can go right in homebrew. And um, although I will I will give a shout out to Rossa and I'll give a shout out to Kev from Third Barrel. And um, even though their stories were quite similar, I thought I'd mention them anyway. Um, but both of these were just basically bottle bombs. So remember what we were talking about, whether you're either bottling or, or it's your primary fermentation. You know, this is just one of these things where learning very early on how volatile bottles can be is a good lesson. Um, because they will explode <laughs> if there's too much sugar left in there or if there's an infection that can also sometimes do mad things so the the moral of the story is check your sanitation make sure that things are stupid clean stupid clean um, and make sure that your things have fermented out before bottling if you're bottling I've never heard of a keg exploding but I, I do believe it's possible so be careful <laughs> um, but yeah these two stories that I got as well as a few more that I got from the Capital Homebrewers um, WhatsApp group were mostly about bottle bombs. So it's clearly the thing that most people wanted to impress upon new brewers. So yeah, watch out for bottle bombs. Store things, um, if you can, away from important or valuable stuff. So <laughs> I did recently yeah. have a bottle bomb, the first time ever in my homebrewing career, except that it wasn't beer, it was tapache, which is a very <laughs> weird one. It's so, it's so... It's got so little alcohol that you wouldn't even believe that it would ferment. But anyway, it did. But it was in the box that I've, I've built for like conditioning and fermenting beers. So it was all kind of contained, thank goodness. Um, there was two or three like wine bottle sizes that just went ballistic after I corked them. Um, a couple of days later, it was clearly too warm in there and there had too much activity going on. We heard this massive sound and I thought, the hell is setting off fireworks at like six in the morning no no it was my bottles <laughs> they were going mad in in the box and so I opened the lid a little bit scared you know to see what the hell is going on in there and there was one that was still you know put together and I was like oh shit can't deal with this thing anyway my husband dealt with that thank goodness he had to like pop it in the shower just in case it you know went went mad which it did because it gushed everywhere and it was all the things but anyway I don't recommend also making tapache and then trying to add more honey to make it even more fizzy doesn't need it so <laughs> <laughs> so those are the most of the horror stories from homebrewers are around bottle bombs and um, so be careful of those although I've been brewing for I don't know close on 10 years and that was the first time it ever happened and it wasn't beer so yeah any parting thoughts friends otherwise we are going to start wrapping up here just emphasize again, check your temperature, check your sanitation. We're going to keep saying it. It's really, you know, I, I don't want to say it's as simple as that, but I feel like those are your two biggest hurdles. If you've got those, you know, you're good. Mm. Almost yeah, regardless absolutely. of what you're making. Yep. And and yeah. watch those categories that you're entering in the competition. Yeah. Very, very good. And I will say that if you are in Ireland and you're looking to join a homebrew club, contact me on Twitter or on Instagram because I'm part of the homebrew club and I can point you in the right direction to the one that's closest to you. Um, as well as if you're in South Africa on the off chance that you're listening to this, because I can point you to the right clubs there too. Can't help you with anywhere else in the world, I'm afraid, but you never know. Very quick reminder, we are um, at Beer Ladies Pod everywhere on the internet pretty much. And you can buy some merch, you can buy us a beer, you can um, 
share this episode with a friend um watch us on youtube do do all the things we love it when you engage with us especially on twitter and instagram and um, it's really fun to see what you all think about our episodes and and how they how they move you or touch you in whatever ways so <laughs> <laughs> so thank you katie lisa christina thank you so much for bringing your stories and everybody listening at home we will see you next week bye 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 bye, bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.